0: So today we're going to be in the book of Romans in chapter 8, but before we get there, I was working on the sermon this week and I remembered a time, about 2005, I was about 26 years old and really thought I knew everything, I think every 26 year old does. And uh, I was really into history and the founding of of America and what it meant. And so I was in the bookstore and I found this book called Under God. It was uh, a book written by Toby Mac, Michael Tate from DC Talk. And (coughs) I thought, well, I'll just pick up this book and and see what the, the Christian side of the founding of America was like. And... I was just really shocked that the first story I read in there was, was something that I had never heard before. It was something that was foreign to me, and they said in the book that this story was in American history books, you know, until about 1930, but it, it was something that was never repeated or, or passed on, and I had never heard it, so it was kind of shocking. I want to uh, read that story to you this morning. It's a story called Bulletproof. It starts, (coughs) an American Indian chief looked scornfully at the soldiers on the battlefield before him. How foolish it was to fight as they did, forming their perfect lines out in the open, standing shoulder to shoulder with their bright red uniforms. The The British soldiers did not break rank even when the braves fired at them from under their cover in the forest. The slaughter continued for two hours. By then 1,000 of the 1,459 British soldiers were killed or wounded, while only 30 of the French and Indian warriors who were fired upon who were firing on them were injured. Not only were the soldiers foolish, but the officers were just as bad. Riding on horsebacks fully exposed above the men on the ground, they made perfect targets. One by one, the chief's marksmen shot at the mounted British officers until only one remained. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. The chief commanded the warriors, and they leveled their rifles at the last officer on horseback. Round after round was aimed at this man, twice the officer's horse, was shot out from under him. Twice he grabbed another horse that was idle from where another officer had been, been shot beside him. The native warriors stared at the man in disbelief. Their rifles seldom missed their mark. The commander, <coughs> seldom missed their mark. The chief suddenly realized that a mighty power must be shielding this man. Stop firing, commanded the chief. <coughs> This one is under the special protection from the great spirit. A brave standing nearby added, I had 17 clear shots at him, and after all, I could not bring him to the ground. This man was born not to be killed by a bullet. As the firing slowed, the lieutenant colonel gathered the remaining troops and led a retreat to safety. That evening, as the last of the wounded were being cared for, the officer... (laughs) noticed an odd tear in his coat. It was a bullet hole. He rolled up his sleeve and looked at his arm directly under the hole. There was no mark on his skin. Amazed, he took off his coat and found three more holes where bullets had passed through, but stopped before reaching his body. Nine days after the battle, having heard of the rumors of his own death, the young lieutenant colonel wrote to his brother to confirm that he was still very much alive, his letter stated, as I have heard since my arrival at this place, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech. I take the early opportunity to contradict the first and to assure you I have not as of yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensation of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or explanation for I had four bullets through my coat, through my coat and two horses shot from under me and yet escaped unharmed although death was leveling my companions on each side of me the 23 year old officer went on to become <coughs> the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and the first president of the United States in all his years <laughs> of his long career this man George Washington was never wounded in battle. As I read that, I had never heard that about George Washington. I had no idea of who he was. I remember second grade, I had to do a report on George Washington, and and everybody remembers the cherry tree. A few people remember that he had wooden teeth. His favorite meal was flapjacks, I think, but we don't ever hear about his solid faith, how, how much of a man of God he was, and to me, it was just, it was so amazing and refreshing to, to have read that. Hold on, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, what would give George Washington this kind of faith, this kind of drive, this kind of, I guess, fervor to stand up and get a horse every time? You know, maybe he read Romans chapter 8, you know, before going out to battle, but let's go ahead and turn there. It's gonna, we're going to start in verse 31. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a promise. We have been offered that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of Protection from our God. How can we honor God in this? How can we give back for what He's given to us in those things? I want to take a deeper look at this, at this passage. There's five questions that are offered in Romans 8 there. And um, We'll start with the first one. first one was in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And let's, let's look at that second part. Who can be against us? As a Christian, who is, who is against us? You know, a lot of times we as people, we think of our bills are against us. Our car is definitely against us. Those roads out there. That's not good. But if we narrow it down to spirituality, what is, what is against us? And it, it comes down to anything that is in opposition to God is against us. And it may not seem like it's against us to start with. It may be something small and, and you don't really think of it that way but God sees it as an opposition to him, so it's against us, it's against Christianity, it's against the moral values that that we are supposed to to carry with us through this life. Um, Just a couple of of quick instances. Uh, I took my nephews to, to McDonald's and the Cardi B party, that's not really against us, right? Everybody loves Cardi B and her songs. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I've never listened to one. I, after we were there, they were telling me how their mom really doesn't like her and that she's a bad person and things like that. So I, I pulled up one of her videos and probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Good thing I didn't do it at work. But the, the words... Of that song, we're so filthy, we're so depraving that I, you know, I felt I felt gross. But you think about it: seven-year-olds are repeating this stuff; they're singing those songs. That's that's not good. And McDonald's has chosen this person to be be a spokesman, an ambassador, um, and things like that. It's not it's not good. You know things that are against us come from where we eat, where we work, where we walk, the kind of clothes we wear, the kind of stuff we watch. Another one that that's really, I don't know, kind of hits me hard is uh, pro-choice. You know the the world wants you to think that this is okay. It's just a choice, but. Is it a choice to end a life? Have a hard time with that one. So with the world taking every opportunity to encroach upon our, our Christian values, that opposition is there. Um, John sixteen thirty three says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, this part of the verse, you know, what is, who can be against us, that's, that's kind of the world's job, that's kind of Satan's job, is, is to oppose the Christianity. But let's look at the first part of that, if God is for us. Now, we have saw the, the huge opposition that is against us as Christians, but if God is for us, maybe we have to ask ourselves, who is God? If you were to ask around town or at your work, what, what would be the answer? Who is God? You might hear Things like, oh, God's kind of this genie in the sky. You you ask for things and he gives them to you. Or maybe God's a, a man-made deity to to explain unexplainable things. Or maybe God is a big care bearer who's there to to love the good things and not think about the bad things. But is that who God is? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses three and four. It says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. It says he is the rock. His ways are perfect. His ways are just. He is faithful. He does no wrong. Those are, those are awe-inspiring qualities of, of our God. He's not, you know, a care bearer. He's not a genie. He's, he is our God. He's, he's the law giver. You know, and it's not, it's not the law like we in America like to think of it. Oh, we're going to write this to appease most of the people we can. He is the true mark of right and wrong. He's a, he's a mark of perfection. This is hard for people because our society wants to tell them that your version of right and wrong is all that matters. If you, if you can rationalize it, if you can speak it, if you can talk it out and, and make others believe it, then, then that's right and that's wrong. But that's, that's not what our God says. He's, he's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's the beginning and the end. He's, he's so much more than, than what, what we like to think of. A pastor I had in, in Nebraska, one of his favorite sayings was, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. How often do we give God everything? How often do we make him Lord of all? You know, back to our, our car that breaks down, our, um, our house that needs repair, maybe an animal who ate a pill that they shouldn't have. You know, God is not this Oprah of the sky where he says, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. He's not doing that. He's, he's discerning right from wrong. He's, he's just giving you all that he has. So no matter how bleak the outcome looks or overwhelming the opposition seems, God has already defeated it. So if God is for us, who can truly be against us? Question two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's that's such a great verse. How will God not give us all things. When I hear this verse, I think about God's plan of salvation and how the first and initial part of this, he chose to give his son. And more than that, it was the plan. It was his first plan. Even though I heard this story from from day one of Christianity, it's still tough to think of God and that being his first plan. I always thought of God being up there in heaven and he's, he's treating it like the choose your own adventure books. Everybody read those? If you choose this, turn to page 74. If you choose this path, turn to page 64. And I always thought that was kind of how God worked. He was, he was taking what we gave him and making the best out of it. But that's not... That's not what it says. It was his plan A to give his son. It was plan A to sacrifice him for you and me. It was plan A to to save the world. Now, if I was in his shoes, I often envision myself in heaven and, and making these decisions and knowing that that has to be plan A. I'm doing the numbers, I'm calculating everything and understanding and and hearing that, well, you're going to have to sacrifice your only son. He's going to die for them who don't even like you. That's the only way it's going to work. That's your only answer. That's the only probability. I would have scratched it, went and found something else to do with my time. But that wasn't God, that wasn't who he is. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has given us everything we need for godliness and life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. When we read that God gives us all things, it's not talking everything you can think of, like the, the Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer story where they're out fishing, and Huck Finn remembers uh, his, uh, his mom or the, uh, the lady taking care of him told him, all you have to do is pray to God and he'll give you whatever you want. Give you all things. That's not what it's talking about like it says in First Peter, his divine power has given us everything, but everything we need for life and godliness. So if you need those things for godliness, then yeah, he's going to provide that. But if you don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it. Question three, who will bring any charge against them, those who whom God has chosen? This question sets up in a a courtroom situation, basically. Who is going to bring a charge against you? Now, if you guys are like me, I've sinned. Some of you may have not. But I have. So, not only have I sinned against God, but I've sinned against people. I've sinned against my parents, against loved ones, things like that. So, who has the right to bring a charge against me? Everyone, right? But to God who has the right to bring a charge. A lot of times we think Satan is the one who's going to bring the charge against us, right? And Revelation's chapter 12 verse 9 and 10 it says the great dragon was hurled down the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser, or the one who brings a charge, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. So, In this courtroom of God, Satan is definitely an accuser, right? Who else can accuse us before God? Ourselves. And this is the hard part because there's such a fine line between accepting that you're a sinner and being... uh, Sorrowful for it, and not being able to walk away from it, not being able to, to accept forgiveness. First John 3:19 and 20 says, "This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Dear friends, if your heart does not condemn you or not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this is what we really have to look at. We have to bring it before God. We have to tell him, hey, we're, <laughs> we're sorry we messed up. We messed up bad. We know that we sin, and we know that the wages of sin is death, but we also know that you've promised. You've promised forgiveness for us. So don't, your, don't let yourself be the accuser, but rather be a gracious recipient of Christ's sacrifice or sacrificial love, because no one can bring a charge against you, or no one can bring a charge against God's chosen. That's what that verse says. The question, question four. All right, so we move from who accuses to who condemns. So in a courtroom, you have the accuser, so the one saying that you've done wrong, you did this, you did this, And then you have the one who condemns, which is basically the judge saying, okay, all that has been founded true, so now here's your sentence. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So so if there's no condemnation, Or why is there no condemnation? How do we how do we get out of being condemned? As, as a sinner, I know that I've done wrong. If I was to steal a piece of candy from a store, what is what's the punishment? Maybe different for everybody, right? Maybe you get away with it. Maybe your parents make you take it back. Maybe your parents make you pay for it. Maybe your parents make you pay tenfold. But why does it say that there is no condemnation? And the verse continues, Because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, he was raised from the dead is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So there's our answer. Christ paid for our sins. He he covered that. He's already paid in full for any past, present, or future sin that you're going to have. It's not... It's not a blank check to go out and sin as much as you want. But it's a check saying that these are my people. I've got them covered. So knowing that and knowing that all accusations will fall short in this in this courtroom of God. Let's read Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. When I read that, a lot of times I just read all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't go on to read that and all have been justified, or all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. That's, that's a big part of it. You know, we like to throw out that verse, for all have sinned, right? Because we don't want the same condemnation. Everybody sins, so it's okay. But if we continue that verse... It talks about the Christians are being justified freely by his grace. And that's that's a very important part of that. So moving on to question five, and maybe the most important question out of all five of these. says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verses 35 through 39. It starts with a fairly comprehensive list. Uh, of things that would separate us from, I guess, earthly possessions, earthly things, friends, family, things like that, right? It says, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Some of those. you know, definitely could separate us from people in here, right? Hardships. We have people leave the church over hardships. Persecution. If someone was persecuting me, I'd probably want to get away from them. Famine. Famine has a way of separating people because you have to move different places, right? Nakedness. I don't think I want to see any of that. Um... Danger, definitely danger, or sword. We don't don't think about sword so much anymore. But all these things can separate us from people. Can they separate us from the love of God? The answer we find in verse 37, it starts off with no. So no, these things can't separate us from the love of God. And then Paul goes on to state why he believes this. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's, that's pretty comprehensive. If none of that can separate us from God's love, why do we, why do we worry? Why do we fear? Why do we, why do we stress over things? Is it because we're not worried about the love of Christ anymore? Are we not worried about God's love for us? Are we more, I guess, entrenched into things that we can be separated from instead of what we can't be separated from? The author of these, of these verses, he had to prove his faith several times. He had a lot of hardship. He had a lot of things going on in his life that, that would separate him from people for sure. But in that list, he gave us some of the things he went through having, having experienced it. If you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul gives kind of account of himself. He says, are they servants of Christ? And then he quotes, he says, I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have, ex- have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for you all in the church. <laughs> what, what a list. If we were to sit down and write down our hardships or our, our troubles, our struggles, would we come close to that? I know I wouldn't. So, Paul, having gone through all of this, how and why did he remain faithful? He remained faithful because, well, maybe perhaps he knew how precious his own redemption was. How great it was to be forgiven for what he had done. Or maybe he understood that the, at the end of the race what the real prize was going to be. What about us as Christians? With our persecution, with our troubles, with our struggles, why do we remain faithful? Why do you remain faithful? For me, I've never been like George Washington and been bulletproof. I don't know if I've ever been shot at. I haven't been like Paul. I haven't been beaten 40 times minus one. I haven't been persecuted in that that realm or in that severity. But still, I know who my God is. And if we know who our God is and we know what he's here for, the protection he offers, the salvation he offers, that gives us our freedom. That gives us our faithfulness, right? So this morning, when we think about God, remember those verses. Remember that we are more than conquerors through him. There's, there's nothing this world can throw at us that, that he hasn't already faced, that he hasn't already taken care of. And leave here just encouraged that God is for us and not against us. All right. Today we're going to be going into partaking in communion.